Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, in January this year, 600,000 viewers across the world tuned in to watch Nina the Chimp give birth live on camera via Vox Telecom's Yarclick satellite connection at the Jane Goodall Chimp Eden Institute in Mpumalanga. Well, according to the organiser, Graham Wallington, CEO of Wild Earth TV, this is just the tip of the iceberg for live wildlife streaming in South Africa. Graham, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's um, great to be here. This is all rather exciting. I didn't realize that there was such an enormous interest internationally for things that are literally happening in our backyard. Sure. It's been going on since 1998 when, uh, when, when we started broadcasting in South Africa with African.com um, and, uh, and now on WildEarth.tv where we, we basically have people all over the world come to watch waterholes and watch sharks underwater, live game drives. Um, a lot of nesting, nesting birds, bird feeders, the list just goes on and on. And up until quite recently, it was a very costly exercise for you to be able to do this. But now I think with the Vox Telecom and the Yarklick connection, things are a lot easier and a lot more affordable to be able to do this. Absolutely. The, the, the biggest problem for people who've got, let's say, you know, you, you've got a game lodge and you've got a great waterhole right out in front. And, and, and you want to create a webcam to create more engagement and more viewers, which in, in, you know, on, on Facebook and on, on your website, which ultimately leads to, you know, more guests and more awareness. Um, and, you know, if you had this opportunity and then you, you went and investigated what it would cost to get a live stream out from that waterhole, it was totally unaffordable. Um, you know, the bandwidth costs, um, internet bandwidth costs in South Africa have been much, much higher than just about anywhere else in the world that I've ever worked. And, uh, and now they've come down in cost a lot. And these things allow you for under a thousand rand um, per month to be able to stream a live 24-hour-a-day video stream into one of the Wild Earth servers in Europe or the United States. And from there, we distribute it all around the world for people and actually make money out of it by selling advertising. I was reading some information about what, you know, all this could actually lead to. And I was very interested that in one of the things I was reading, it talks about farmers, for example, who don't particularly want hordes of tourists and wanting to build a game lodge, but they've got something fascinating on the farm. And for them, they can now stream this and actually earn a different sort of revenue stream from this. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it has the potential to, 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 to generate big revenues. Just to give you an idea, uh, in um, northern Iowa, a small town called Decorah in the United States, um, a, a small rehabilitation sort of center that looks after raptors, um, called the Raptor Resource Center, put a web camera on a bald eagle nest um, for the nesting season. Now, every year, Wild Earth streams uh, between 20 and 30 different bald eagle nests in North America. And this one wasn't actually on our on our platform, it was on Ustream, but it became super popular, so much so that there were 130,000 people watching at any given time for the three months that this nesting, uh, you know, story unfolded. Um, and in, 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 in a total of, I think, almost 150 million people viewed it over that period, making it one of the most viewed videos of all time. And... In today, with today's system, that could have, that could have made a total gross revenue of thirty thousand dollars per day. Sure. Um, yeah. Now, it, th- those events are very rare. But, you know, they, they occur. I mean, it's hard to understand why one webcam just goes mad like that, goes viral. But if it does, it can actually mean meaningful money. But the other thing that this kind of virtual tourism can do is that for areas that are very, very sensitive to human impact. Um, and where you, you know, uh, it could be an environment like a, like a rainforest or something where you just can't have all the people coming through without actually destroying it. There's, there's the opportunity to, to have many more people experience and enjoy uh, an environment with much, much less um, environmental impact. So we're really at the very early stages of the concept of virtual tourism. But I think ultimately it's real contribution in so much money, although that is important, that really this lowering the impact of human beings and footfalls. It's sort of almost tourism remotely. It's, it's, but then the other side of it as well, though, Graham, is the fact that I was reading about something called Pete's Pond, is it? Yes. And, and I mean, though, those, where is that? That's in Mashatu, um, in the Tuli Block, um, at the confluence of the Shashi and Limpopo Rivers. Um, it's, a, um, it's a beautiful place, and it's a, it's a very dry place, which means that this waterhole 
where this red tan is, which is actually started off the flights with National Geographic and about two, three years ago while they took it over. And um, we, it, it's, got a, it's got a huge following of semantics that know themselves as the Pondy, or call themselves the Pondy. And um, they remotely control the camera uh, 24 hours a day. There, there, there's people all over the world that volunteer, and then they put us at a time aside on a schedule, um, and for a couple of hours they control the camera remotely so that everyone else can enjoy it. But now the interesting thing about them is that they're actually, the people that are watching this, bonded over the video feed and they actually pulled their funds together to travel to Africa to actually come and see the site in person. And what I'm getting at here is that also this leads to, in certain cases, larger tourism numbers coming into the country. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, many, many, many more people will view it remotely than will actually come physically and visit. Um, but having a very popular webcam like Pete's Pond, and there are many others, can also can also result in um, uh, quite a high percentage of them coming and visiting over time. So they fall in love to such an extent, and they have to change their, 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 their time zones and their behavior. For example, 75% of our audience are, um, are women in the United States over the age of 35. Um, and if they want to watch a morning game drive, a morning safari, um, on the east coast of the United States, they have to start watching at midnight and, and they'll finish at 3 o'clock in the morning. So often people will go to sleep beforehand and then wake up later. And if you've made that kind of commitment for a while, eventually it becomes almost a pilgrimage to, to come and visit this place that you, you, know, you spend so much of your life at. I think it's absolutely phenomenal because, you know, as I said, it, it's in increasing the knowledge because people are learning a whole lot more about places that they possibly wouldn't have before. And it's very different seeing it live as opposed to seeing a documentary because in some of the of the literature I've read about, about um, your company, about Wild Earth, you talk a lot about the fact that, you know, a documentary is something that's filmed possibly over a year or two and you're getting sort of bits and pieces put together and you don't actually see the, the actual event unfolding live. And that, I think, is possibly also part of the, of the draw to something like this. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing to remember is that, I mean, we, we make a lot of wildlife documentaries as well. And, and so it's an important part of our business. And, and we believe that documentary television is, 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 is a crucial part of the television, you know, mm. stratosphere. But, but the truth is, is that, you know, it, 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 takes, it takes things are much slower in the real world. And it takes time for things to unfold. And you don't have Lion King, Lion Kill after Lion Kill. There, there, there's a, you know, it's different from what people have learned to sort of expect, let's say, mm -hmm. by watching only documentaries. And I think it's that reality, that, that real reality, that, that truthfulness and that honesty that lies brings. Um, it, it, you know, people, it resonates with people and they seek that out in this world. You know, the, the simplicity and truth of nature is, is something that, that's hard to hide. And when you see it, it's obvious that it is true. So where to from here, Graham? I mean, it's oh, you almost seem to have everything sorted here, but I'm sure there must be more. Well, this is 15 years that I've been working on this. It's an immensely complicated um, project. <laughs> um, and, 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 and we're at a very exciting stage because two, two things are happening right now. One is that the cost of bandwidth is dropping so much that lots more people are coming on, approaching us and saying, now, can I do this webcam? And we're helping them do it. So we, we provide huge amounts of, of free help based on our experience. Uh, recently, the Allen webcam came on, and it is a bird feeder in the eastern suburbs of Victoria. And it's super popular. I mean, you, you know, people in the U.S. are just loving seeing lurries and red-billed wood hoopers, which they would never see, you know, on any of the other cameras. Um, and, and that's the one big trend that's happening. Anybody, anybody who's got a beautiful, natural events taking place, a den, a nest, a waterhole, uh, uh, even a pond, you know, it, it, it can, it can all be exciting. And then the other thing is that I just recently returned from um, Jackson Hole in Wyoming in the United States where um, I gave a talk on, on live wildlife broadcasting. And um, the, 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 the number of television channels, big television channels that are now super interested in live wildlife broadcasting, whether it's game drives or television event is so exciting. So I think over the coming years, we're going to see an explosion on the internet um, because of the dropping cost. But we're also going to start seeing this kind of content occurring on our television sets, which for me is very exciting. It's good to see it being taken so seriously. So this is going to be the, the ultimate reality television? Well, it, maybe, yeah. It, 
well, maybe it'll be the first reality television. Well, yeah, because I was, I'm saying the ultimate because sometimes what they you know tell you is reality TV, you sort of wonder a bit. But this, the animals can't fake it. Basically, it's real stuff. That's better than they can't fake it. That's for sure. <laughs> it's real, Graham. I think this is absolutely amazing. So, as you say, anybody who's interested could possibly, if they have something interesting um, wherever it is they live, possibly just get in touch with Wild Earth TV and just see if it's something that you would be keen on 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 joining up with them with, and you can chat. Absolutely. Visit wildearth.tv and uh, you'll find some contact details there. And if you get something great, we'll, we'll, we'll work with you to see if we can you know, take it to the world. Oh, that sounds absolutely amazing. Well, well done. And and I'm, as you said, it's been around for quite a while, but I'm so sad we've only got to hear, well, I've only got to hear about it recent, relatively recently. Glad I have now. Um, but thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck for the future. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks, Graham. Good Thanks. Good night. Yeah. I was Bye. chatting there with Graham Wallington, and he's the CEO of WildEarth.tv. And to find out more about virtual tourism and the work that they do, take a look at www.wildearth.tv forward slash home. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, sports tourism is one of the fastest growing areas of the global travel and tourism industry. And the third annual sports events and tourism exchange will be hosted in Durban from the 22nd to the 24th of October. And joining me now is Sugan Pillay, the Business Development Director of Tebe Exhibitions and Projects. Sugan, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen, and thanks for having me. Well, this is year number three, so obviously it's been a great success that you're doing it again for the third time. Tell us a little bit, for those who aren't quite aware, exactly what is this all about? Well, you know, I think before the World Cup, uh, you know, there were lots of questions that we asked as to what happens to South Africa after the World Cup. How do we sustain the infrastructure that government has invested in? So we created a platform uh, in partnership with the Department of uh, Sports and Recreation, with SASCOC, with South African Tourism, in order to bring the sports and the tourism industries together under one roof. And the real aim of it is to showcase our ability as a country to host major international sports events. Uh, because, you know, the reality is that even though you hosted a successful World Cup, if, if the country is going to sit back and expect more events to come in without being aggressively uh, marketing the destination as an events destination, it's not going to happen. So this is an attempt at, at really promoting South Africa as an events destination. And this is across the board as far as sports are concerned. People think sports, you think rugby and soccer and cricket, but there's a lot more to it. Yes, and you know, it's not just about the actual sporting events, but it's also about the link between sports and tourism. You know, I think that there's lots of uh, groups of people that travel around the world to experience sporting activities, and adventure sports is, is, one, is one of the, the key areas that people come to South Africa for. Golf tourism, for example, is another huge area that people come to South Africa. So it's really about creating the link between some of our sporting activities in the country and, and, and the tourism industry. Uh, we have some great events in South Africa that could be packaged and, and, and really aimed at attracting more tourists to come into the country. And that's what we're really aiming to do. I mean, we bring about uh, over 50 international buyers from all over the world. And these are rights holders of events, but also sports tour operators that specialize in, in packaging events uh, to attract more tourists into the country. And these buyers are, are first-time buyers that have come to, that come to South Africa to assess our capacity to really get an understanding as to who the role players are in the industry and really to do business with each other. So, so it really is a great platform to, to promote the, the country as an events destination. Because you talk about the sports and the people will come in to do whatever it is sports-wise they do, but they don't just do that. That's the whole point, is that they will go off and do other things as yes, well. Yes, I mean, we've seen, we've seen it through big events. You know, I mean, the, the, the event itself, uh, like a football game, is only 90, 90 minutes. Mm. But after that, there's a number of things that people can do. And, and people don't just come here just to, to watch an event. They come here to experience the country. We're a long-haul destination, so people just can't hop onto a plane and then hop back uh, home. You know, they, 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 they tend to spend an average of two weeks in South Africa, uh, and they make a holiday of it. So really, it, it's a great opportunity, you know, coupled with the infrastructure that we have, uh, our reputation as a, as a sports destination, and obviously the tourism offerings that we have. The linkages between sport and tourism then becomes very critical. The other thing that, that I've seen happening more and more often in the you know, last few years, are Northern Hemisphere athletes coming to train here in their winter? 
Yes, yes, uh, exactly. I mean, you've got high-performance centers in South Africa, in Potchefstroom, in, uh, you know, in, in Pretoria, and, and, and a lot of these athletes come here to use our facilities. Uh, that's one of the other objectives that we're trying to achieve through this, uh, through this event. At the exhibition itself, you have a number of venues around the country that are trying to promote themselves to these Northern Hemisphere buyers that want to use our facilities during the off-peak periods. But more than that, I think, you know, linked to the exhibition itself is the conference. And the conference is actually aimed at mobilizing the industry itself to become more globally competitive. So it's really about debating the issues, uh, the challenges that we experience as an industry. How do we actually overcome these challenges? How do we actually uh, address issues of local government and what should local government be doing to support sports federations? What are the challenges that some of the smaller federations are experiencing uh, uh, to, to link in with the tourism industry? So the conference itself is a two-day conference, and we've got a number of international speakers that are coming here to share their experiences with us. But obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, key strategies that's going to take our countries forward. And I think one of the big strategies we're going to be discussing is the whole issue about which event should we bid for as a country. Should the Olympics be on the program? Should the Commonwealth Games be on the agenda? And, and these are some of the things we're going to be discussing this year. But the one thing that we have done, going back to the Soccer World Cup, the 2010 World Cup, I think we actually placed ourselves very firmly in the spotlight internationally because we seriously pulled that off so well. Definitely. I mean, I think the way the country came together you know, not just at the national level, but certainly at the city level. Whichever cities were staging matches, I mean, you know, the atmosphere was absolutely amazing. Uh, the level of, of service in this country was, was at an all-time high. And I think people that came here had a really great experience. And, you know, we've seen an increase in tourism since the World Cup. I mean, a lot of people said after the World Cup, we'll be going through a slump in the tourism industry. But we've seen growth in the industry since the World Cup. So, what the World Cup has done is that it, it's really created ambassadors for South Africa out there. Uh, and as you know, word of mouth is a really powerful marketing tool. And so when people came here and they got a great experience, they started uh, talking about South Africa as a destination to other people. And, and so more people come into the country. But the real challenge for us is that we, we really can't sit back and, and expect the world mm. to start coming to South Africa without us doing anything proactively. I think the focus now is very much on Brazil. Last year it was in London because of the Olympics. And I think the focus is going to be on Brazil, not just because of the World Cup, but because of the, the Olympics in 2016. So we've got, to be, we've got to be playing in that space. You know, if we want the attention of the world to still be on South Africa, we're going to have to play in that space and attack more events into the country. And this is really what we're trying to do through this event. Do you think we're a little bit of a, for want of a better word, a surprise to the international market when it comes to things like this? Because I think possibly before the World Cup, um, I don't think we were considered as that kind of destination. Yeah, look, I think a lot of uh, markets uh, around the world, uh, you know, visitors that come here, they're quite surprised about the kind of modern infrastructure mm. that they have as a country. Their perception of South Africa and of Africa, as you know, is very negative. And I think the World Cup has helped to change those perceptions. But, you know, generations come and go, and it's important that we constantly mm. remind the new generations that we have a lot to offer as a country. You know, we hosted three successful World Cups in, in, in a space of, of 17 years, and I think very few countries, I can't think of any other country that has done that. Um, but we've got to be doing more. I think the, the industry itself is saying that we need to bring in more events on a regular basis. And I'm not just talking about your World Cup type events, you know. It's your other sort of international events that attract uh, three or 4,000 uh, participants per event, you know, and if these events happen annually, they have a huge boost to our economy. I mean, an example is the BMX World Championships, for example, that happens in, in Peter Maritzburg. Uh, you know, it happened in 2010. It attracted over 4,000 uh, international athletes. And for an area like Peter Maritzburg, that was a huge boost to the economy over a period of two weeks. So it's those types of events that we also need to be going after. And I think the challenge for us is, is to start getting all the role players together in, 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 in thinking about uh, sports tourism in that way. And I'm pretty excited because I think at this year's conference, we've got the right people that are going to be talking about these issues. And we're pretty confident that at the end of the conference, we're going to come up with a really good plan. What actually, do you, how, how long after the conference do you actually see the fruits of your labor, if you like? Do, you, do people start making deals at the conference or is this something that happens afterwards? How does it actually work that way? Well, look, as I said, you know, uh, there's two elements to the event. There's the exhibition side mm. where we bring in uh, sort of product uh, sports federations in South Africa 
um, uh, you know, tourism industry stakeholders. And the idea is that we match them with international buyers that are that have uh, access to events that they want to take around the world. And they then meet with whatever we have to offer in South Africa. So, for example, uh, two years ago, the, uh, Thomas Cook Sport, for example, from India, came into South Africa. And uh, they wanted to understand what sort of school infrastructure that we have for cricket. Um, and now there's, there's a whole lot of uh, school cricket events that are happening throughout the country, just through Tom, uh, Thomas Cook Sport. Um, you know, Sport Accord, which is the biggest uh, sports convention globally, they attract something like 5,000 uh, delegates from all international sports federations around the world. Uh, they've been in talks with Cape Town, for example, to bring that convention to Cape Town in 2017. Um, the, the Clipper Yacht Race, uh, you know, at the, at the first seat, uh, the Sports and Events Tourism Exchange event in Cape Town, um, there were discussions there to have a stopover in Cape Town, and I know this year they, they're doing a stopover. So a number of these organizations that come here, they come here specifically to strike deals. You know, so you find that obviously, you know, the the, the conference is I'm sorry, the exhibition is aimed at uh, engaging these uh, these buyers, uh, and and then the process then unfolds. And look, it takes probably between six months to a year before a deal is actually struck. Uh, but the conversations actually start at this event, uh, and and we're quite uh, impressed with the the response that we've been getting from your international buyers that are really interested in in bringing their events into South Africa. And we think this year it's, it's, it's going to be no different, you know. So that's on the exhibition side. On the conference side, obviously, you know, there's a lot of uh, a discussion that takes place around putting plans together, putting strategies together. Last year, for example, we agreed on a strategic framework that identified the key international events that we should be looking at uh, in bringing to South Africa over the next 17 years. Uh, and at last year's conference, we were then mandated to put a business case together for government. We've done that now, and that's going to be discussed at this year's conference. And we're hoping that after this year's conference, we'll have a much clearer um, direction as to whether we are going to be going for Commonwealth Games or an Olympic Games or, or any other games. And, and where is the funding going to come from? Is government going to be committed? Which cities are going to be driving those bids? That's what we're going to be discussing at this year's conference. And we're hoping that we could come up with, with some clear guidelines on that going forward. Well, it sounds like we're in for a whole lot of exciting sporting activities in South Africa in the not-too-distant future. Sugan, thank you very much indeed for joining me, and good luck with the with the conference. Thank you very much for having me. Sugan Pillay is the Business Development Director of Tebe Exhibitions and Projects, and the third annual Sports Events and Tourism Exchange will be hosted in Durban from the 22nd to the 24th of October at the Durban International Convention Centre. For more information, you can visit www.sportsandevents.co.za. Time to travel with Car and Key. Well, I'm joined once again by Kerry Harvey. Now, we haven't spoken to her for a while, and she's a freelance travel writer. And probably the reason why we haven't spoken to her for a while is because she's been traveling. Kerry, welcome back. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, you've been to a few places, but let's start off this evening with your trip to Namibia. It's a desert place. You love deserts. I love deserts, yes. And you know the Namibs, the apparently the most ancient desert on earth. So there's a very special atmosphere there. Now you spent, I mean, obviously when you go to deserts, you like to do your solo thing in deserts or very sort of quiet places. But you tracked desert black rhino on foot and, and okay, the elephants you tracked by vehicle in Damaraland. But tell me a little bit about your black rhino trekking on foot. Well, the black rhino tracking is, it's, it's really quite a unique experience because black rhinos are dangerous. Mm. Um, mostly because they have such poor eyesight. So, you know, they they kind of charge whatever they think may be threatening to them. So, you know, part of the tracking was on well in a vehicle because it's a very, very unwelcoming terrain. It's very rocky and very steep, and you, in, in fact, are always driving over rocks. So it's clambering over rocks with a vehicle. Um, but then you actually get to a point where it's inaccessible even with a, with a four-wheel drive, and then you go on foot. So um, it's the last bit of the tracking. You know, once the rhino, they know roughly where they are, and the tracking is actually a, a something to behold because there's no sand. So they're not tracking spur. They're tracking disturbance um, through the mountains where they think the rhino have walked. So, yes, then the last bit is on foot, and... You know, in single file, very quietly, um, and also, you know, making sure that you 
are downwind from the rhino so that, you know, he can't smell you coming. I worry about things like this because you mentioned that they are in danger, the black rhino. Are these groups that they take out there relatively small? I always worry about the impact on them. Yes, the groups are very small. In fact, our group was um, two people, two people, um, two trackers, a driver and a guide. So um, Six, yeah. it's, it's very small. It's in, you know, it's in a Land Rover and that's about all they can fit in there anyway. Okay, so, I mean, so they are making quite sure, I would imagine, that the, the rhinos aren't too disturbed. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, you do stay, you know, watching the rhino for a very short while as well. You stay, observe, you know, take some photographs, and then you move off again. So there's no real intrusion. And you're keeping a, you have to keep a safe distance too, because while they're very bulky, they're very fast if they want to be. And what about the elephants? You also went and had a look at some desert elephants. Yes, the desert elephants um, in Namibia are actually amazing because they've they've adapted to living in in desert conditions. And I mean, as we know, elephants need a lot of water. So these elephants are they look quite different, um, although they actually the same species of elephant that we have here in South Africa in Kruger and all over the show. But they appear to have longer legs and be leaner and slightly smaller and that you know could be a result of the conditions they live in but they are tracked only in a vehicle um, you know for obvious safety reasons but it also takes quite a while to find them if you do find them I've, I've had you know unsuccessful rhino and desert tracking attempts before so this was a lucky trip um, because the the elephants actually move 80 to even 100 kilometers through a night so they cover vast distances and and you do need to track them literally um, with spur. And then you went off to visit the Himbas. I mean, we sort of moved off from the rhinos and the elephants. We're going to have a sort of visit with some people now. Yes. So that was a truly fascinating experience because there are a lot of Himba um, communities that are still living very traditionally. But there's also quite an interesting mix going on because some of the Himba um, the children are actually studying, you know, at schools and universities in Vintuk and elsewhere. But their parents are living the traditional life, which is, you know, with just a few small little skin clothes and <laughs> lots of beads. So there's quite a, I wouldn't say it's a conflict, but it's, you know, two different worlds running parallel with these ancient communities. But this this particular community lived um, very traditionally in their in their tiny huts and in their traditional clothes and they you know eating their traditional food and cooking in in the ways that we've have and it was absolutely fascinating um and this particular group the chief was actually a woman which is also oh wow okay and that's quite, quite unusual, unusual. Mm. Yes. Yes, but which goes to show that they're quite progressive, I think. Absolutely. Gosh, I mean, that's quite quite unexpected, that was. We mentioned animals in the beginning, and then you went off to visit people, and then you decided to go out to sea, and you saw quite a lot of stuff. We did. Um, we went off Valfus Bay, which, uh, you know, is, is Namibia's biggest port. And actually, it's a huge bay, so you, you go out into the bay, and we went on a, on a luxury catamaran, which runs trips for tourists. And we saw we saw so much. In fact, uh, we were barely we barely got going, and a seal had clambered onto the back of the catamaran, and um, this was apparently one of his habits, and he was just hitching a ride. And <laughs> as we continued, so more seals jumped on, and there were pelicans riding on the guide rails, and you know cormorants also landed. And anyway, it it, it turns out that it's also it's a really informative and educational trip as well, because all these animals are jumping on and off the boat. They're welcome to do so. They have been doing so for years. Um, but in the process, you learn about them because you get to see them so close, mm. which you normally can't. So it was a fascinating trip. Um, and then also all the way out to Pelican Point, where there's a, a beautiful lighthouse and um, a sort of, I guess you could compare it to a sand finger that Pelican Point is. And it grows every year as the sand is added to the point. And also, we did a loop past an oyster farm because Namibia supplies millions of oysters, you know, to the Asian market particularly every year. And what about dolphins and seal, uh, seals and whales, any of those? Because you speak a lot about the birds. What about sea life as such? Yes, we also saw a, a very rare sighting. We saw a grey whale off Valfus Bay, and um, this is not normal at all because they apparently live 
off the waters of Canada and they, in fact, migrate around South America. So this guy was way off course. Got slightly lost. Got slightly lost, yeah. So um, we, we did see a grey whale too, which was quite unique. Wow, okay. Yeah. And then you went up, you were the, off the boat now, you, you drove up this, to the Skeleton Coast. And there was the one thing about the Skeleton Coast, though, what I always find fascinating, rather sad, though, are all the shipwrecks. Which Indeed. Is, well, you know, it's a, it's a coast of skeletons, not just of shipwrecks, but also of plane mm. wrecks and whale bones. And there's skeletons of all descriptions up there. So, But it is, it has a really surreal, desolate beauty about it as well. Um, and also some interesting stories where, you know, ships had wrecked and planes had gone to rescue them and the planes had wrecked and planes had gone to get those planes and they'd wrecked. And, you know, it just, it seems to be quite a trepidous coastline, but extremely beautiful. And it's not just shipwrecks. Um, they're lichen fields, huge lichen fields, which, of course, lichen's an indicator of pure air. So it's incredibly clean up there. And then the coastline is just very wild and very, very moody and dramatic and beautiful also. Now, these things that we've spoken about so far that you've done up in Namibia, are these all things that are open to the public? And where would people find out about them? Are they just general things they would go to um, Namibia tourism for? Yes, they are most definitely all open to the public. Um, and Namibia tourism would certainly be a first stop, but there also are a number of tour operators, Namibia uh, Tracks and Trails is one of them that does excellent work throughout Namibia and and runs tailor-made trips to wherever you want to go. I, in fact, travelled with them. And, and so, yes, everything that I've, that I've spoken about is open to the public and, and they can do it and enjoy it in the same way. So Nam- Namibia Tracks and Trails, and people could find them on the internet quite easily. That's that's correct, yes. And also, um, I think you always put things up on your Facebook on your page, page. Mm. and it, all the information will be there as well. So, so Kerry, all these things we've been talking about now, I'm going to put all those contact details and website addresses on the Facebook page if anybody wants to have a look. They'll all be up there. So we'll give you some at the end of, the, of this interview, but there's just too many. So go and have a look at the Facebook page. Right, well, we haven't finished quite yet. Kerry, what is this Irongo wilderness area you went to? What is that? And where is that? Karen, it's, it's an area sort of northwest of Vintuk, um, if I can put it that way. And it's a true wilderness area. Now, I mean, Namibia, you may say, well, the whole of Namibia is wilderness. But Orongo has a, a very different atmosphere. Again, it's, it's mountainous. There's rock art there. There is wildlife also. But it just has a very special feeling. And it is, you know, it's, it's real wilderness. You feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Right up your alley, that. Right up my alley. So what, is, what do you do in, in the wilderness area? I mean, is it just sightseeing? What do you see up there? Well, there, there is, you know, Irongo um, Wilderness Lodge there, and they, they run fantastic walks through the area. Just walk through, you know, game viewing on foot or bird watching on foot, and also to the caves to see rock art, which they have close by. And then, of course, there are also game drives where you can do it by vehicle if you don't want to, if you don't want to walk. And they have a huge variety of game there. But it's because it's a wilderness area. We're not talking about game that you know jumps out at you as in Kruger. You do have to look for the animals, but and they're in a vast area, but they are there. How long did you spend there? Uh, that was two nights there, as far as I remember. Is that enough time? It is enough time, yes. You know, in all these places, you can spend, you can easily spend a week, you can spend a month, but um, to just get a sense of it, two nights everywhere would be a good start. Now, you mentioned Vintok. Did you spend any time in the in the city? I did spend some time in Vintok as well, and um, although I've been to Vintok numerous times before, this time was, was quite different, because I actually did a, a city tour, which was very interesting, just to see some of the history and and landmarks in Vintuk, and then I also did a township tour through Katatura, which was particularly interesting to see how how people are living on that side of town, and went through the market, which was the cleanest that I've ever seen in my life, and to see people making traditional dresses, and you know, there's there's, there's food and cooking going on, and people selling herbs and spices and mopani worms and chilies and all sorts of things. So it was a fascinating day. The one thing you did say about your trip to Namibia was that it was a trip where you saw places less travelled. Was that quite important to you? 
it's always important to me because I think you know maybe for a for a first timer who goes to a country to see the high spots or the iconic landmark places in a country but if you return you like to go a little bit deeper into the countryside a little bit below the surface as well and I think those are you know those are the less touristed places and and just looking for something a little more unusual so that that is something I love to do. Well we started off this interview I mentioned that Namibia must have been a fabulous destination for you who's absolutely besotted with anything to do with the desert and I couldn't let you go without asking you about the living desert tour I mean it was what just outside Swakopmund? It is, and what's, what was so fascinating to me is you literally disappear behind a sand dune because, you know, the, the desert runs onto the sea, and you feel like you're, again, in the middle of nowhere. And um, this, this Living Desert Tour, it's actually Tommy's Tours and Safaris. Tommy runs them himself most of the time, and he, he also has some very highly trained guides helping him. But he started this whole operation to actually bring the desert to life to people because the desert is living but on the surface it appears as you know a vast amount of nothingness but if you just know how to read the desert you can find all sorts of creatures you know so we found um, legless skinks and scorpions and shovel snouted lizards and namaqua chameleons which uh, this is the only chameleon in the world that lives in a desert and it's right there in the Namib. And we also looked for sidewinders, but I must admit I was relieved we didn't find any. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a step too far. Just a bit, yes. But um, it's just absolutely riveting, honestly, how, how much is going on in the desert and how if you just look at the surface, you see nothing. But if you look a little deeper or are with somebody who knows how to read the signs, there's just so much going on. It's chaos, actually, in there. Now, you've, we've spoken to you before about deserts that you've been to all over the place. That you, how many have you got left to do now? How, are you sort of working through a list of deserts? Oh, there are still plenty to do, Karen, plenty. I think it will keep me busy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something that, that you would say would anybody with a fascination with wildlife or something different or the desert like you would just love going off on this living desert tour? Well, you know, it's just a, it's pretty much a, a half-day tour, maybe a little bit longer than a half-day, in absolute comfort in a beautiful, well-equipped Land Rover with food and drink along the way. And you're not bouncing around because that is not how you drive in a desert. Um, it's very sedate, very calm. They know how to drive and where to drive. They're hugely conservation-conscious as well. So it's an absolutely phenomenal experience to have a full desert experience. Um, not just seeing and doing, but also how to conserve in a desert. I would highly recommend it. You'll give us those contact details and I can put them up on the Facebook page as well if people are wanting to find out more about the Living Desert Tour. Absolutely, yes. Great. Well, Kerry, it sounds like you had a fabulous time in Namibia and you're going off to Ireland soon, so we can chat to you about that next time. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us this evening. I was chatting there with Kerry Harvey. She's a freelance travel writer, recently back from Namibia, and she's got a whole pile of different websites, which are really far too many to give to you now. So have a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM. And, and they'll all be listed. But in the meantime, if you want to go and have a look at some things, have a look at www.namibiatourism.com.na or otherwise www.namibiatracksandtrails.com. But now this one, it's namibia-tracks-and-trails.com. That will also be on the Facebook page. So you might just click on it or cut and paste it. It might be easier. So have a look at those. And uh, don't forget to go and have a look at Travel on SAFM. All those websites, and there are quite a lot, will all be listed there. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, I'm joined on the line this evening by Chris Davis, and he's the Chief Operating Officer at Fairview. Now, you might have heard us speaking a few weeks ago about the Spice Street, and Fairview is part of that, if you like, of, of that whole Spice Street. But Fairview is a destination all on its own, and it has the most fabulous cheeses and all sorts of other delights on, on the farm. But So Chris is going to tell us a little bit about that. Chris, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. So... Fairview's been around, gosh, quite a long time. I think 1693 it's been around since then. That's right. It has as a farm, and, and it came into the, the uh, back family in 1937. 
when Charles's uh, grandfather purchased the farm way back then. So it's actually a third generation that, we, that we're looking at now with Charles back, the current owner. So tell me a little bit about what happens at Fairview. I think people know it for cheese and people know it for wine. But right. is, is this somewhere that you can come out for the day with the family, with the kids? Absolutely, yeah. We've tried to gear it towards it to, to make it sort of family-friendly. Do you know, the nice thing about Fairview, it's, it's only a 60-kilometer drive from Cape Town, so it's very accessible. It's, a, it's sort of a 40-minute drive up the N1 highway. And, and you're here, and then basically when you get here, you know, we've got the, uh, the cheese and wine tasting that we're so well known for, but we've also got beautiful gardens and a lovely restaurant called The Goat Shed. And so it's a very nice eatery there where you can get, um, and there's, there's also a few kiddies meals on the menu there, so it does cater for the youngsters as well. But it's a very relaxed, uh, very relaxed environment to sort of get away from the hustle and bustle of, the, of city life. Huh? You mentioned The Goat Shed. I mean, you really do have goats. We've got goats. We have the goat tower, which I think uh, mm. many people uh, know Fairview for. So the goat tower is a sort of a landmark at Fairview, and lots of people find that very fascinating just to come along and stare at the goats sort of going up and down the, the stairs on the, on the outside of the tower. Uh, so that, that's an exciting thing to do just in itself. You ever get the kids away from there? No, no, they love it. <laughs> in fact, well, what we've, we've recently, just towards the end of last year, we started a, a new campaign called Junior Cheese Masters, which we ran sort of over the over the December school holidays, and we're looking at uh, reinstituting again this year. And and where we have some people who basically we have the goats there, so the kids get to milk the goats, they get, they learn how to make cheese, they do some art, and they make a pita pita kind of style bread. So that's a nice, you know, if mum and dad want to go and you know try a bit of cheese and wine tasting and want to shake off the youngsters for a little bit then there's, you know, they're able to do that now over the school holidays. It's also one of those destinations, Chris, where besides all the fabulous food and wine and, and the goats and everything else, the views, is one of those places you can just stand and stare at the views. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, you're right in amongst the vineyards, so it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful setting and it's just, it's just great to be out in the country. That just, that's an adventure in itself, just the drive out here, you know. It's in Paul. Yes, it's, in the, it's what they call Seder Paul, so the south, south end of Paul, yeah. Right, so just talk to me a little bit more about the cheese because I think that is where what people most know Fairview for. If you say Fairview, people say, oh, cheese. Right. Okay, so we're sort of mainly into what we call speciality cheeses and we do a range of goat's milk and cow's milk. Uh, Although we're probably very well known because I think initially the first cheeses that we did were goat's milk cheese. Nowadays, it's about a sort of 85% split cow's milk and and 15% goat's milk um, cheeses. Although goat's milk uh, cheeses are becoming more and more popular um, as people sort of look to them for health reasons, you know. So we've got a lovely range of species. The kind of cheeses we do are breeze and camemberts and blue cheeses and cream cheeses, wash rind cheeses, and then on the goat's cheese we do what we call the chevens, it's almost like a cheese log, and a gratin, a goat's milk camembert, feta, a very big range of cheeses. I, I, you know, we've got like 25 to 30 different types of cheeses. And the um, other thing, just to add, that's nice about, you know, if you, if you do make a turnout this way, uh, to come to Fairview is that, you know, when we've got new cheeses that we're working on, then we always um, try them out at our tasting room first because it's a nice sort of barometer for us to establish what people think of the, of the cheese and we get great feedback from our customers. So we could be the guinea pigs, if you Absolutely, like. Yeah. Well, that sounds yeah. really good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so... Okay. W- what else is new that's coming up at Fairview cheese-wise? Okay, so we've, we're busy in the process of launching a range of cheeses called Lubna. It's spelled it L-A-B-N-E-H. It's, um, it's basically a strained yogurt cheese. So it comes in, in, in a tub, and you would sort of scoop it out and apply it to a cracker or bread uh, for a nice, you know, nice French loaf that you can buy here at our, at our destination. It's beautiful you know, to serve it on that. So Lubna originates from the, from the Middle East area, and in fact there's a lady called Shelley who's come, recently come across from Israel, and she's helped design the recipe. So it's her recipe, and it's actually called Shelley's Cheese, but it's sort of endorsed by Fairview. And um, it's a lovely cheese. comes with different kind of herbs and spices, and, and that's hitting the shelves right now as we speak. So that's an exciting one to look out for. And then the other cheese that we just launched in the last few weeks is um, a range of Dutch cheeses that we've been bringing in, in wheels from Holland called Eric's Cheese. And uh, that's a lovely range. We've got five cheeses in that, in that range. But I've actually I've got Eric Heinen out here with, with us right at, at the moment. And he, he's here to talk you through in a little bit more detail around those cheeses. Well, that's great. Let's chat with, with uh, Eric. Okay, I'll put you straight on to him. Thanks. Hello, this is Eric. Eric, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. And Eric Heinen is from Holland, as um, Chris mentioned, and he's out in South Africa to impart some of his knowledge about fabulous cheeses that he makes. Eric, tell us a little bit about the cheese industry back in Holland, because I think Holland is well known for being the makers of really fabulous cheeses, really fine cheese. Definitely, definitely. Uh, the Dutch actually uh, are famous in especially one type of cheese. Like Fabio makes uh, a white malt and a blue malt cheese and some, some fresh cheeses. Uh, in Holland, we make the Gouda cheese. It's a, it's, a way, it's a different way of making cheese. You know the Gouda cheese here locally made as well, mm. but our range is definitely different from that. I was very surprised because I know Gouda, and you think Gouda is just Gouda. But when I looked at your selection of Gouda, you have young Gouda, mature Gouda, Gouda with cumin, young goat's milk Gouda, matured goat's milk Gouda. I didn't realize you could get that many different types of Gouda well, then, cheese. Then, yeah, then you even got these five. In, in, I've got a shop in Amsterdam, and I've had it for about 25 years now. And I think I have, you can find perhaps in Holland, you would find at least... 80 different types of Gouda cheese. So these five is just a selection of ones we thought suitable for the market here. Are these cheeses that Fairview is now going to be stocking of your selection of cheeses, are those still going to be imported from Holland or are they going to be making them here in South Africa? No, they are still going to be imported from Holland. To make them over here, you would need a complete new factory for that complete different style of making cheese, complete other other machinery to do that. So they decided that better let the Dutch make the best Gouda cheese and <laughs> import it. What I was very interested to read, and I didn't know about this word before, but you are, is it, am I pronouncing it correctly, an affineur? Yeah, that's a French a French word for uh, some somebody that's actually taking care of the right ripening of the cheese. So if you would use it in Holland, only the foodie type of persons know what you talk about. And an, an affineur is somebody that is actually looking at the cheese, taking care of the cheese until that moment where it's ripe and ready to eat. And uh, in France, you have a lot of these white malls and blue cheeses and even wash rind cheeses, and they all uh, are being actually taken care of until the moment to be ready to eat and more or less you can do the same thing with the gouda cheese but then the gouda cheese matures longer in a, the, the white malt cheeses you eat within the first month or something or perhaps even six weeks i don't know exactly but the gouda cheese you start first eating after six weeks and then i've got cheeses in my shop that are even three years old wow. so you maintain the cheese for that period, put it on wooden shelves, taking care of it all the time in the, in the right environment and do that for a long, long period. And even then, after three years, it's still creamy and rich and flavorful. So that is something different and very expensive, of course. Yeah, I would imagine so after having looked after it for so long, yes. you have to obviously pay for all that good care. Exactly. The other thing I was quite interested to see as well, Eric, is that you are, are developing new Dutch cheeses using traditional French methods yes. of affinage, which yes. is the cheese making. Uh, why would you use French methods when the Dutch are so good at making well, their own cheese? That's a, that's a good question. But as you know, there is a, um, also here in South Africa, I noticed a lot of people are into local produced things. Mm. And that's the same in Amsterdam. So what I'm, what I'm doing there, I have, I have direct contact with farmers that produce their own cheese. And they used to produce the Gouda type of cheese. And uh, now, more and more, they are looking for new possibilities, new different kind of cheeses. And for us, to make a white malt, it's something completely different. And even the cultures you need to put to the cheese to get this kind of cheese, a white malt cheese, for example, they have to come from France. So what you find is, instead of actually exporting the long way to 
to South Africa, I, in my shop, do the opposite. I try to buy locally and ask farmers to make their uh, even a, a, a blue malt cheese, a white malt cheese, or whatever. It's a long and difficult process. So we even travel to France and see how they do it. And then finally buy the right cultures, starter cultures, and the right malt to make these cheeses. And it's a, a developing process of getting all kind of good food stuff around the city. But Eric, it's, it's wonderful to have you in South Africa, and uh, we look very forward to trying some of your amazing cheeses. Thank you. So if people want to pop out to Fairview or out They're there very welcome. at selected sh- stores around the country as well, you'll find these cheeses. It's not just on the farm. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on my show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Chris, I was just chatting there with Eric, and sure. uh, amazing, all these new cheeses, they sound amazing. And exciting. as I said, they're not necessarily only available at Fairview, which is, as I said, a great place to go for the day. But if you aren't in the Western Cape and you, you're dying to try some of this, they are available around the country at certain stores. That's right. They're available at Checkers stores nationally and at the spa stores in the Western Cape and the spa stores service from the South Rand. So, Chris, if people want you to pop down to Fairview, when are, are you open Monday to Sunday, Monday to Friday? What are your opening times and hours? We actually open Monday to Sunday, and it's 9 to 5. Uh, we close only three days in, in the year, and that would be on Christmas Day, New Year's Day, and Good Friday. So, so any other time? three days, we open. All so time. Monday to Sunday from 9 to 5, five is that, is that right? right? Gosh, so you, you, no excuse that you can get there one day of the week. Absolutely, Definitely. Yeah. Don't, don't pick one of the three days that they're not open <laughs> and then complain. They open every other day, 362 days of the year. That's right. So not, you, you know, you're not going to be short of time to get there. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. And it sounds like a wonderful new addition to what, what you're offering at Fairview with Eric's new cheeses. That's right. Yes, we're very excited about this launch. And, and the cheeses, the quality of the cheeses is just fantastic. So it's great to have those cheeses under the Fairview and, and I've learned. I've learned a lot. I've learned about things like affineurs. I've learned that Gouda isn't just Gouda, one type of Gouda. There's all sorts of different ones. Right. So it sounds amazing. Thanks so much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I was chatting there with Chris Davis. He's the Chief Operating Officer at Fairview. And I was also speaking with Eric Heinen. And he is a cheesemaker, a renowned cheesemaker from Amsterdam. And he's out in South Africa at the moment at Fairview introducing his selection of fabulous Gouda cheeses. And if you'd like to find out more about Fairview, about the cheese, about the goats, well, gosh, anything that happens out there, you can call them on 021-863-2450. Their website is www.fairview.co.za. You can follow them on Twitter at Fairview Wine. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Fairview Wine. And don't forget that they're open 362 days of the year, just closed on Good Friday, New Year's Day and Christmas Day, Monday to Sunday from 9 to 5. The Minister of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, Ms. Tina Jamat Peterson, has declared a list of a particular group of trees, champion trees, under Section 12 of the National Forests Act of 1998. According to this Act, no person is allowed to cut or destroy any protected trees without a license. Contravention of this declaration is an offence and any person who is found guilty can be sentenced to a fine or imprisoned for a period of up to three years. For the full list of the champion trees, you can visit the department's website at www.daff.gov.za or contact Ms. Shimani Zavani at 012-309-5765. Time to travel with Karen Key. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report when Attorney Nicolene Skuman will be joining us for our monthly law clinic. And this month we'll be looking at wills. That's the Law Report on Monday the 14th of October. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM. 